Amen. You may be seated. If you've got your Bible, will you turn with me once again to the letter of James? Or today's text is printed there on page 10 in your bulletin. And we're going to read once again verses 13 through 20, the very end of the book. end of the letter, I should say. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings a sinner brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. And as always, our God, we pray for your spirit to work with the word to make our hearts fit soil to receive it and bear fruit. In Jesus we pray. Amen. I want to focus mostly on the last four verses, verses 17 through 20 today. And you know, what is probably the biggest challenge for me as a pastor, if you care, <laughs> is that I have to believe things about you guys that you find very hard to believe. I have to believe and preach stuff about you and me that I know you find very hard to believe, and I find it often hard to believe myself. We've spent a lot of time in this letter, and what Pastor James believes about his readers is captured back in the first chapter when he says to them these words, of God's own will, he brought you forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. What James believes about the people reading this letter is that, I mean, you got to know, these are margin, marginal people. They are not, they're not important people. They don't matter. Nobody knows, nobody's reading about them in the papers. Nobody knows their, their, their names or reputations. They're, they're nobodies. But James knows something about them, that because they follow Jesus, they are what he calls the first fruits the first sheaves in the harvest of God's whole new creation. James, uh, Darian Lockett puts it this way. He says, his readers are the leading edge of God's work in recreating the world. I mean, that's pretty hard stuff to, to take in. And I have to believe something similar about you. I don't believe you guys are the first fruits of God's new creation. I think you're the, I know, you're the 21st century fruits of God's new creation. You are the 2,000 years into this new creation thing that God is doing through Jesus, you're the, you're the harvest. And what we've seen throughout the letter of James is that our calling from God as followers of Jesus in this new creation is that we are supposed to develop integrity in that identity. That's who you are, that's who I am, but we have to develop some integrity to kind of grow into that identity, those that, that new self, we've got to become the new humans that God says we are. It's not a question of whether we are, but we have to grow into this. And throughout the letter, what we've seen is, what does it look like to, to develop integrity? Well, it means basically two things. It means, number one, maturity. 
It means you've got a father who created you by his word, and you've got to grow into his love and grow into his wisdom and become like him. And that is a growing process, and we all have a long way to go, but God is working. But the second part of integrity is resistance. Because as children of God, there are going to be things in this world that you have got to resist. You've got to refuse to be led away from Christ. And there are going to be things, beloved, there are things pulling on you right now to pull you away from Christ. You have to say no to them. You have to just simply resolve, by God's grace, I am not going to be pressed into any mold that disregards God's presence and God's purposes. Every day, I'm, stuff's trying to bend me into the mold that is not paying attention to God's presence and not paying attention to God's purposes. You've got to resist that if you're going to have integrity as the new humans God is making. And if you remember that background, I think it helps us understand what seems like a fairly abrupt kind of almost out of the blue ending to this letter. But if you think about this new creation background, this ending makes quite a lot of sense. And I'd like you to think, based on this text we just read, about a little group of Christians in the first century, maybe 20, 25 years after Jesus rose from the dead. They're in very hard times. I want you to imagine them maybe scattered in a faraway place that's a long way from where they grew up because they're running from persecution. Anyway, they're outside a sick room, one of them is really, really sick. They've been praying in that sick room. Now they're outside kind of whispering the way Christians do. You know, now we text. And they're kind of comparing notes about how things are going in our life, you know. And, you know, the stories, like they stories fly among our, us by our text. You know, they, you know so-and-so is really suffering. They're just having a really hard time. They're just, you know, in a dark period, especially those who are sick. You know, there are people that are, you know, terminally ill. And, you know, there's talk about the fact that some of the people in our community are really struggling with sin habits. You know, we've been confessing this to each other. We're talking about this. We've got sin in our lives, man, and some of us are really, really struggling. And we're confessing it to each other. And, you know, the sad thing is in this little community, some of us are really being powerfully pulled to go back to what James calls the world. You know, the old world of just Greco-Roman culture and Second Temple Judaism. Some have already wandered back because it would just be easier if they did. And then James writes these words about Elijah and about bringing a sinner back at the very end of the letter. And I don't want to exaggerate this. I actually have not read a commentator who necessarily has said this, so maybe this is just Ben's wonky thinking and you're free to disregard it. But I I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that if you look at the Elijah picture and these last two verses, given all the Genesis imagery throughout the letter and all the creation imagery throughout the letter, I think these final few verses are a subtle but elegant reminder to these readers that in their little life together, which seems so far from where all the power is and all the action is, in their little life, God's reversing the fall. God is reversing the fall. And I want to talk about just two, two things that James mentions. Number one, the first thing he mentions to them, these, these nobodies, is that God topples serpents through our prayers. Remember that God topples serpents through our prayers. Because he says in the end of verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person, whether for sickness or for other things, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Remember Elijah. Now, why Elijah? This is where you really kind of got to know your Bible sometimes to figure out all the resonances within a text. But let's just think for a moment about the context of Elijah. If you were to flip open your Bible to the King's Scroll, the two books of Kings were once one, there was a King's Scroll, and you were to turn to what we call chapter 16, you would find out that 
In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over the northern kingdom of Israel. He reigned 22 years, and he, we're told, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than anyone before him. As if it had been a light thing for him to walk in all the idolatry of previous kings, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, a pagan nation to the north, and he went and served Baal and worshipped Baal. And he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And he made an Asherah, a, 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 a worship grove for this false god. He did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And then there's an even weirder little footnote right after we find out about Ahab. We're told that there's this dude named Heel of Bethel who built Jericho. And God had promised curses to anyone who built Jericho, and so this cost him his firstborn and his youngest son, according to the word of the Lord. But now we're rebuilding Jericho. And the picture you get is that what's going on in God's land, <laughs> under God's king, with God's people is, we are Israel is literally turning into pre-conquest Canaan. Like, God's new Eden has a serpent on the throne. <laughs> it's just as bad as it can get. It looks like Israel is just as dead as could be spiritually. It doesn't get much worse than let's go literally imitate the, Canaans God the Canaanites that God drove out before us and be as wicked as they were. It looks like God's covenant has just ground to a complete halt. And there is, if you're a faithful, a faithful follower of Yahweh, the God of Israel in these days, there is nothing in the political culture, there is nothing in the religious culture, but apostasy and rebellion and darkness. There's nothing to encourage you in being faithful to the Lord. Nothing. If you're faithful, you are a few and you are lonely. That's what's going on. And then you open chapter 17 and this is what it says. And God sent a military coup that marched on Jezreel, toppled the regime, installed a new king who, was, who vowed to set up the Davidic monarchy once again in all of its Solomonic glory. Nope. That's what you and I would have done. That's good American politics for you. God wants to set the axe to the root of the trees. That's what needs to happen in Israel. And so you guess what we read in this horrible, awful, appalling situation, this really weird guy, Elijah the Tishbite. Who's Elijah the Tishbite? No idea. He's never been mentioned before. He says to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Very strange prophet, very strange but very confident message to the king about what God is going to do. And then right after that, God says to Elijah, now Elijah, it's about to get very hot around here, so I want you to go run and hide, and I'm going to send some birds to feed you. This is God's plan for changing the nation. Have a prophet show up, speak an insane word about rain, then have him run away to the wilderness and feed him with birds. That's God's plan. That's how he's going to put an axe to the root of the trees. And you might say, that just seems crazy. No, it seems like God. Because by the end of the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, if you read through them over many, many, many chapters, by the end of their ministries, that wicked serpentine regime will lie in ruins, and God's new creation will have visited this land of Israel in the form of drought, yes, for a long time, but then life-giving rains upon the earth, and literally, Elijah and Elisha are some of the only prophets who raise the dead. 
actual literal resurrection power will visit Israel under their ministries. But I want you to notice what James flags about that story, which would have been totally familiar to his Jewish readers. He does not flag all the fireworks that happened. What he flags is, beloved, Elijah was a man like you and me, and he what? He prayed fervently. That's not mentioned in Kings, except in that phrase, before whom I stand. Elijah acknowledges he stands before God. But James knows Elijah could not have burst on that scene and disrupted everything as he did, throwing all the apple carts over. He could not have done that unless he had been with God. And I just want to notice very quickly the four features of Elijah's prayer that James mentions here. They're, they're kind of obvious, but it's worth just pausing over each of them. Number one, you'll notice Elijah's prayer was, number one, biblical. Now, maybe you're saying, I don't really see that. I don't see any biblical, you know, it says he prayed for rain. Where's that in the Bible? Well, actually, it is in the Bible. <laughs> Elijah announced drought. He announced the judgment of drought upon Israel because he had first prayed for that judgment to come, but he had prayed for that judgment of drought to come upon Israel because God promised that exact judgment in his covenant with Israel. And so Elijah is praying here according to what God has said. Peter Lightheart helped me with this enormously in his wonderful commentary on First and Second Kings. He says this, Even before he appears in Kings, Elijah's praying, asking Yahweh to withhold the rain and the dew. According to Deuteronomy, when Israel, one of the early books of Moses, when Israel turns from Yahweh and pursues idols, false gods, Yahweh will bring all manner of curses, and among the curses is drought. Quote from Deuteronomy 28, the heavens that are over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you iron. Yahweh will, Yahweh will make the rain of your land powder and dust. From heaven it will come down until you are destroyed. Lightheart goes on, Elijah knows the covenant and he understands God's curses. He observes the idolatries of Omri and Ahab and he prays that God will keep covenant by cursing a disobedient and rebellious people and driving them to repentance. Then this sentence, Elijah anticipates Yahweh's plans because he knows Yahweh's character from Scripture, unquote. Elijah anticipates Yahweh's plans because he knows Yahweh's character from Scripture. That is what I want you to notice first in the prayer of Elijah. He can pray knowing what God is going to do because he has searched the Scriptures to know who God is and how God is and what God has promised to do in history. So his prayer is biblical. The second thing you'll notice is that it's fervent. Elijah feels passionately about what's going on at the time. In fact, it's interesting in the Greek, that phrase, with a nature like ours, you'll kind of recognize how this sounds. It's actually homoi, homoiopathes, like passions. And Elijah, like you, he looks around at evils happening in the world, and he is passionate. He, he's moved. He doesn't sit there. You know, I, I, some Christians seem to have this idea that the more you know God, the more kind of like checked out you are. Like, oh, it's all good. The more you know God, the more you see stuff. And it should inflame you at times with passion. That in itself is no, not bad at all. You should feel about the things that are going on. But what does Elijah do with his passion? He doesn't start a blog. He doesn't start, you know, spewing uh, things on Instagram. He prays. He channels his passion into prayer. He is a man of like passions with us. I mean, you think these readers didn't feel passionate about the fact they were suffering under, you know, the, 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 the 
religious persecution and political persecution of their time, but Elijah channeled all that passion into prayer. He didn't start by addressing Israel. Man, I am on fire. I'm going to go talk to Ahab. He started by talking to God about the things that were burning in his heart. And I was thinking as I, as I reflected on that about what Paul says about prayer in the end of Ephesians when he says what Elijah himself knew, we wrestle not with flesh and blood. See, when I'm angry and I'm aroused about things, I want to talk to flesh and blood. I want flesh and blood to change. There's certain flesh and blood stuff I want it to just fall. And I want other flesh and blood things to rise in, pl- in its place. But we wrestle not against flesh and blood. That is not where the real battle is, Paul says. And then he goes on, so his conclusion is, stand therefore doing what? Praying at all times. Praying at all times in the Holy Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Elijah's fervent, but he channels that fervency into prayer. And beloved, I gotta say, I'm at a point now where if I haven't prayed about something, I don't know if I should have a comment about it. And I'm almost at a point when people talk to me like, no prayer, no commentary. If you come to me and you're worked up about something you haven't prayed about, and you won't show up for a prayer meeting to pray about it, then I don't want to hear your commentary. I don't really care about your opinions, because we've all got opinions. Are you praying about the things that, are, that need, obviously, to change? But if we don't pray, then we should just not talk. Until we've talked to God, don't talk to man. Channel your fervency into prayer. Biblical prayer, fervent prayer, and very importantly, it's the prayer of a righteous man. Elijah's a righteous man, so his prayers are biblical, fervent, and they're righteous. The psalmist says, if I cherished iniquity in my heart, God wouldn't hear me. The Lord would not have listened. Well, does that mean we have to be sinless before we can pray? Of course not. Elijah's a man of like passions. He, he was a sinner like us, but he is able to pray the word because he obeys the word. When God says, okay, Elijah, well done, check, you spoke to Ahab, now I want you to go sit by a brook somewhere in isolation, I'll send birds to feed you, Elijah just obeys. I would have written God a memo and said a number of things about that directive, but Elijah just obeys, he just goes. That's the kind of man he is. When God speaks, he obeys, and it is in that obedience to the word, because he himself is living under the word, he can pray the word, and God hears him. You know, these are children of Abraham that James is writing to. You guys are children of Abraham. And what was distinctive about Abraham? What's the only impressive thing Abraham really ever did? <laughs> I mean, this guy, is a, he's the father of like, how many, you know, m- three major world religions claim Abraham as their father. I mean, unbelievable influence this man has had in, in human history. And, you know, God calls Christians the children of Abraham, he is the sort of paradigm of what we should be imitating. And what's his impressive achievement besides wandering around for 100 years? Literally just wandering around. What did he do? Abraham believed God. <laughs> Unlike Adam, like that was the problem, was not believing, right? And Abraham becomes the new human. He trusts. And because he trusts, when God says, bring me your son, I'm going to put him on an altar, he obeys. And that, by the way, as we'll talk about in a few weeks, that's why God heard Abraham. That's why when Abraham prayed, God was listening because he could pray the word as one who obeyed the word. And fourthly, you'll notice that Elijah's prayers are effective. They're biblical, fervent, and righteous, but they are effective prayers. He prayed, stuff happened. God will bring his promised judgments in answer to prayer. And he'll do more than that. He will send, having 
brought judgment, he will also send the, the early rains and the latter rains and the fruitfulness of new creation. God does not tear down just to tear down. He tears down to build up. He brings low to raise up. He, he, he brings death sometimes in order that he might bring resurrection. And prayer causes that to happen, beloved. I, I was so thankful to be here Wednesday night. I don't, I'll, I'll be honest, I don't know if I've ever been a part of a prayer meeting that meant more to me than that hour. Hour, we prayed for a solid hour Wednesday night. And I, 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 what shocked me about that hour was I, I get very twitchy in prayer, and I'm always checking the clock. The first time I checked my clock was 53 minutes into the prayer meeting because the spirit was just moving. It was beautiful to hear the word of God prayed by the saints. And God, I know, heard us that night, and he answers the prayers of his people. The, and you know what's astonishing to me? The most apparently powerless saint on the earth can wield that divine power. The, 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 like the nobody of nobodies who believes in Jesus can wield that power of God through prayer. I love this from, again, from Peter Lightheart. He says, Yahweh, the God of Israel, he is the boundary-transgressing, infinite, boundless God. He never retreats, never suffers a setback. He's never frustrated. Nothing can hold him or hold him back. Drought can't limit him. In fact, he sends the drought. Death can't keep him away. He's the Lord of life and death and demonstrates his power over life and death in the resurrection of Jesus. And he promises, listen to this, he promises to put his infinite resources at the disposal of those who pray in righteousness and faith. He is our helper. And this is actually shocking language. He is ready and waiting to receive instructions through the fervent, effectual prayers of righteous believers. Now, he puts instructions in quotes like we are instructing God. But God actually says, I'm waiting for you to pray. What does that even mean? He doesn't need us to pray. He knows better than we do what should happen. But he waits to receive instructions, as it were, through the effectual, fervent prayers of righteous believers, even the the, the most insignificant among them. So when you pray for each other, dear saints, and you pray for God's kingdom more generally, James is saying, this is your model. This is your new creation model. You pray the word, you pray fervently, as God's obedient children, and God will send his new creation power, and he will topple strongholds. He will bring down serpents. That's what the story of Elijah means. He topples serpents through our prayers. That's new creation. The second thing is that, you'll notice in the last two verses, God reclaims sinners through our works. He reclaims sinners through our works. It's kind of shocking language to hear that you and I get to save people. That seems shocking at first. But this is what James is saying to us. Sometimes in God's new Eden, sometimes in this new Israel that he's forming, now Jew and Gentile who follow Jesus, sometimes one of us is going to get seduced by a serpent. That's, that sometimes happens. Sometimes those in the fold get led astray in what they believe. They get led astray in their ethics, led astray in their moral convictions and their moral practices. There will be times when you will watch one you've called brother or sister turn away from the Father's word of truth because they're in the grip of some wayward desire that's against the word of God. That You'll see that happen. And we have an elder brother, God's firstborn, who's an interesting model for us here because what did God send his firstborn son to do to all these wandering sinners? Well, the first thing, as we've run away from God, we're like Cain, you know, we've rebelled against God, we don't, we don't have a right to be in his new Eden, we're, we're running away from the father like that prodigal son, 
you know, we're like Cain, cursed and wandering, and we hate God, and His judgment is on us, and that's, you know, that's the human situation. And God sends His firstborn son, and it's interesting, the very first thing that firstborn son does, what did God put at the doorway of Eden when He threw Adam and Eve out of Eden? Flaming sword meant death if you tried to re-enter the holy presence of God. And the very first thing that our firstborn brother does is he takes that flaming sword and he takes it himself. That sword that barred the way back into God's holy presence, Jesus takes the death stroke of that sword on himself. And in God's wonderful grace and mercy, Jesus rises from the dead. And then his mission through doing that is he is going to seek and save the lost. I love Tim Keller's point about the, the parable of the prodigal son. Everyone talks about the prodigal son, that the father's waiting for the son to come home. There's an elder brother at home, and he's feeling all righteous because he hasn't left. That older brother had a responsibility to go out and find that wandering brother and bring him home. Jesus is the true older brother. He takes the death stroke of God's judgment on himself, and then he goes, and he's going to find those wanderers. He's going to find those sinners. That's the mission of Jesus. I came to seek and save the lost. The righteous don't need a physician. The sick need a physician, he said. And it's amazing to think about what James is saying here, who, by the way, James is a, a biological brother of Jesus. <laughs> so he kind of gets this whole idea of family traits, right? He says Jesus, the seeker, the savior of the lost, he gives you and me a part in saving these souls. He gives us a part in his work of showing that love that covers a multitude of sins and prevents a multitude of sins by bringing the sinner home to live as a child of God once again. That's part of what we get to do with Jesus in this world is be a part of what he's doing in seeking and saving the lost. And my brothers, he says, if anyone among you wanders away and someone brings him back, know that you're doing that work of Jesus. You have saved his soul under Christ, and you have covered a multitude of sins. You know, I've seen this at Trinity. I think probably one of the most moving things for me as a pastor in the years we've been together is I can say this today. There are people in this fold, and others maybe in other Christian folds, and they're in the fold of Christ because of your saving labors to go after them. Because you brought them back. Now, the immediate concern here, of course, is with wandering sheep if anyone among you ends up being a wanderer. But you can see very easily the larger evangelistic mission of the church is tied up in this because the more Israel is whole, the more God's people are whole, the more we as a body of believers are walking like full on, wholeheartedly before the Lord in faithfulness and fruitfulness, that obviously, that walking in integrity together before our Father, that's how the new creation grows and spreads. But if you've got wandering Christians, how are we going to ever have an effective evangelistic, to, evangelistic witness to people outside the church if people inside the church are running out of it? So the more there's faithfulness and growth within the church, the more that then effective, it makes our witness to the broader world more effective. We're good salt when we are salty. And so that's, that's the, the astonishing thing that, that James is pointing us to. And I just want to just very quickly think about what we're called to here and then how to do it. So I just want you to see kind of what's going on first, but then what, what exactly are we called to do and, and how do we do it? Well, basically what James is saying to us is this. You are your brother's keeper and he's your keeper. That's just what it means to be the church. As I look through this room today, not because I'm your pastor, because I'm your brother or sister, I'm, I'm your brother, <laughs> just your brother. I'm your brother in Christ. You're my brothers and sisters in Christ. Just because of that, because we follow Jesus together, your well-being is my responsibility. 
Do you guys believe that? Are you prepared to take that responsibility up? It's no good being a preaching post where we come hear sermons and go home, and we don't care about each other. We are each other's keeper. Now, obviously, a lot of shepherding and watching over wandering sheep, a lot of that falls to shepherds, pastors, and so on. But also, I'm going to talk about this more next week. Also, this is the duty of fellow believers. These people around you, they are your responsibility before the Lord. You are their keeper. And that assumes a certain level of connectedness in church life. You don't have to be best friends. But if you're not connected enough to even know what's going on in somebody's spiritual life, how can you even pray for them, let alone help bring them back if they were to wander? And it assumes not just connectedness, but real concern, that our hearts are really thinking about, you know, do you have, we're getting a new directory out soon, you kind of have that directory, you're just thinking about these people. People you might not actually see very much of, but you realize, you know what, if that brother or sister has a tough times and they start to drift away from the Lord, I can't just sit here like I don't know what's happening. We're not just a preaching post, we're a church. That's what we're called to, that's what James has in mind. So how do you do it? And I just want to offer a couple of thoughts here about how we fulfill that calling to be our brother's keeper. Number one, that means you and I need to walk in attractive holiness. Do you know it's a little bit sobering? Sometimes the reason people leave the church is because of the church. It's because of Christians. Our lives need to be attractive. It's one thing I said to you guys at our thanks service for our 10th anniversary. I said to you guys, my children, a lot of pastor's kids hate the church. My four children love God and they love the church, and a lot of that's because of you. And you know what I mean by that is you people are not weird. Some of you are weird, but most of you are not weird. Your, your, your Jesus thing has not made you weird in off-putting ways. Now, Jesus should make you different, but he should make you different in attractive ways. He shouldn't make you more full of yourself more nerdy, more like marginal in how you approach things, where you just like, you know, like your favorite thing in the world is praying six hours a day. I mean, you can sit down and talk to a 16-year-old who's struggling with the faith and tell him, you should pray six hours a day. That's not going to sell. You need to have a life under Jesus' lordship, but a life that people look at to like, you know what? I want to be with that person. I want to be like that person. Practice attractive holiness. Jesus doesn't make you less human. He makes you more human. He makes you more alive. (laughs) You should be the kind of person that when people look at you, they're like, there's a lot that attracts me about that person. Their character, their lifestyle, the way they approach things, that, you know, they they enjoy the world without worshiping it. They're free, not to be, you know, they're not enslaved by money and possessions, but they, you know, they do stuff and they're alive and they're connected to real human things. Off-putting Christians are not going to be the kind of people that when someone wanders can go talk to them and bring them back. Secondly, and closely related, don't just practice attractive holiness in your life. Cultivate the kind of trust and openness in your relationships together such that input from one another would be expected and respected. It takes time to build that kind of trust and openness where I actually would respect your input if you gave it to me and I would expect it from you, actually. I want to be the kind of person that when the young people in this church, now I'm not cool anymore, I'm 46, but I want to be the kind of pastor that when young people in this church, if they're having hard times, they have serious doubts about the faith or they're having serious moral struggles, I want to be the kind of person that when I go and I speak to them, I know this, because of the relationship of trust and openness that we have, what I say is going to carry weight, and it's going to be expected even. They would expect me to come, 
They would respect what I say, even if they don't necessarily agree with me or don't choose to follow what I say, because I'm that kind of person who's built that kind of trust. It takes time to build that. It takes time to build that with peers. And I'll just say, beloved, if you're one of these Christians that you do not respect and you do not expect input from at least some other believers, I know Christians like this, they don't respect other Christians, they don't want to hear from other Christians, they surely would not expect anyone to come and get in their business, thank you very much, if they were doing what they wanted to do or believing what they wanted to believe. If you're that kind of Christian, you're that much of a lone wolf, you're in a very dangerous place spiritually. You need to be in relationships with the body of Christ where you would not only respect what is said to you by a brother or sister, but you would expect them to come after you and get in your business because that's what Christians do in love. Thirdly, if you're going to be a one who reclaims wanderers, you've got to major on majors. Not all difference is wandering. People sometimes are just different. That doesn't mean they're wandering. You've got to major on majors. Is this really something that's worth going to someone about? Are they really wandering or are they just different? And fourth and finally, if you don't have the courage or opportunity to go after someone you know is wandering, and I've been there, then just pray until God gives you, through his love, gives you the courage that you love someone enough, you have the courage to go, and maybe then he'll give you opportunity. Just, if, you, if you don't have the courage or opportunity yet, then just pray that God will do it. I think, that's, I think those four things can give us a lot of traction in being the kind of community where if someone wanders, we've got a lot of centripetal energy, as it were, to draw them back in. But the perspective is what I want to leave you with. I said last week there was a practice of prayer last week and a perspective this week. Perspective is everything in our lives. What James is saying at the end of this letter is this work in God's new creation, dear saints, that's what y'all are doing every day. This is what you're doing every day. You're, you're, You're living in and you're, in a sense, working out under God the new creation. And I, I read something this week that really made me think. Most of us, I think, in the modern world have a fairly typical modern obsession with global problems. You know, we're very aware now of global problems, and we need big mass solutions for these global problems. And, you know, whatever might be said about that, this is the sentence I read this week that made me think. This one writer said, if global efficiency is the standard of our work, then most of us have no good work to do. If your good work is only good, if it has global efficiency, if that's the standard for your work, your work needs to have global efficiency, then most of us have no good work to do. Because I'm going to just go out on a limb here and say that 99.99999% of you are never going to do anything that changes the globe. I'm sure not. And God has no calling to you to change the globe. He's called you to do this. If you want to be agents of God's new creation, then, beloved, my counsel to you and to myself would be, let's stop obsessing about earthly regimes and global issues, although they can be matters of prayer, and let's study together how to serve Christ's kingdom through, number one, the work of fervent prayer, and number two, by our words and by our deeds, let's seek and save the lost here and now. That's the new creation, and God will bless it. Amen. Father, we thank you for this letter and all we've learned in it. We've just really scratched the surface, but we pray that you'll continue to cause these words to bear fruit in us in Jesus' good name.